Welcome to the Ludogogi Podcast, your monthly games-based learning earworm. And this is the second season of the podcast, and we're starting with an absolute legend. Aren't we, Sarah? We are. Today's guest, Dr. Richard Bartle, is a, is a true pioneer and visionary in the field of virtual worlds. Co-creator of the first ever multi-user dungeon, or MUD, in the late 1970s, his creation has significantly shaped the way we think about and interact with online gaming environments. His groundbreaking work laid the foundation for what would become the massive online gaming industry, and his research into player types continues to influence games design to this day. He lectures at the University of Essex, where he is an honorary professor of computer games design and publishes articles, books and chapters on virtual worlds and digital culture. So welcome, uh, Dr. Bartle. Um, one of the things that we like to do um, when we've uh, introduced our guests is ask them for an interesting or unexpected fact about themselves. So take it away. Well, um, in the in the spirit of your previous two guests who had strange names that were their own, my mother's maiden name was Toes, <laughs> as in fingers, Anne. Yes, that's why she was keen to get married to a Bartle as soon as possible. <laughs> get, get rid of it. <laughs> well, that, that is indeed a fun fact. It was on the fun. Now, uh, you created the very first ever massively multiplayer online game, and you also was the first to, to create a, a typology of players. Uh, that, that's that's pretty pioneering. <laughs> so, how how do you come up with ideas like that? Like, what was in your mind when you were the first to create these two things? Well, um, in general, games designers um, don't have any trouble coming up with ideas. Um, it's just the trouble is selecting which of the ideas they come up with to work on. Um, so, with mud. Um, I went to the University of Essex as an undergraduate intending to write uh, a game world, but I had a much bigger, um, more of a strategy level look at the game, the, the, the world that I wanted to create. And when I got there, Roy Trubshaw, who was a year older than me, had just started working on more of a um, individual level, um, a person level game. Um, so more tactical than strategical. And um, when I saw him, I thought, well, there's no point in me doing what I want to do. I may as well just join up with Roy. Uh, now, the, the, the reason uh, I can I can give uh, four reasons why um, we, we work together. The first one is uh, that um, it was a technical project. Um, Roy was interested in trying to get programs to speak to each other. There we go. That's easy enough. Um, um, the second reason would be that it, um, it was a way of uh, making things fun for people. It was it, We had a game idea. We wanted people to, to play the game. Uh, we called it a game from the very beginning, Um Roy started the coding. I started to work on the. Um, well, it was on. It was on the, the what we now call content. It wasn't called content back then. Didn't really have a name. But I started on the content, and then took over a bit later. Uh, the third reason why we did it was because we didn't like the real world. The real world sucks. Um, <laughs> so it was essentially it was political. Um, we didn't want, well, 
I'm not. I wasn't supposed to go to university because, with my background growing up poor working class on the east coast of Yorkshire, it wasn't something that anybody ever did. Um, Roy, um, he's from Wolverhampton. Sounds like he should be working in a factory. Uh, and we got to university um, largely because the the government wanted uh, people to be writing programs for their uh, for these new computer things that had just come out. Um, the middle class people, the one in seven of the population who used to go to university back then, it's more like one in two now, but um, most of them wanted to do degrees in things which were um, respectable. So stuff like um, economics or um, literature or no, even mathematics, but things like computer science, but that was that was looked down. I mean, what's that? Some kind of an engineer? Engineers climb posts and fix telegraph wires. They don't. Um, we don't want to consort with you. Uh, so there were opportunities for very bright working class kids to get to university, and um, that's what happened. But we knew that the real world, as it was. Um, and still is to a large extent, was grossly unfair. I would see people on television thinking that they lived lives of luxury, and it turned out they didn't. They were just ordinary people in sitcoms, uh, but they had all this gear and all this stuff, and we didn't. Uh, and because the real world sucked, because we were voted... Uh, because we were treated as if we had... You know, I've got a particular accent, it means certain things. Um, I've got interests that they mean certain things. We were we were just looked looked down on you couldn't be your, um, yourself because the world wouldn't let you be yourself. You had to be who the world told you you were. So we railed against this and we wanted a world where you could be who you wanted to be and become who you were if you didn't know. And that's what the aim of MUD was. And the, the fourth reason for um, that we worked on it was pure luck. We just happened to both choose the University of Essex. Could have been, we could have gone anywhere, but, uh, well, not anywhere, but anywhere that was teaching computer science. Um, but we happened to choose the same one. So, yeah, so there's your four reasons. <laughs> you were heavily inspired by Dungeons & Dragons back then, no? No. Um, no? I played a lot of Dungeons & Dragons, um, but I wasn't... Um, heavily inspired by it. And Roy had never played Dungeons and Dragons. He'd heard of it, but he'd never played it. Yeah, yeah, I've read that. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, uh, I'd played Dungeons and Dragons and I took some things for the design of the third version of Mud, which is the one that um, I really took over. The third version being called Mud One for arcane historical reasons. Um, that one, um, yeah, I took um, levels out of Dungeons and Dragons for that. Mm -hmm. um, we'd already got experience points. Roy had suggested experience points. And when I said, oh, that's like Dungeons and Dragons, he was quite amused that he'd just reinvented experience points. <laughs> uh, as for role-playing, I had invented role-playing games myself um, for my own amusement when I was in my early teens. Um, nothing... Um, like Dungeons and Dragons, but they were role-playing. You, you pretended to be a character and 
essentially was some it was an explorer and you wrote a diary as you were playing and that's where the fun was so i knew about role-playing games before dungeons and dragons um uh, more of an interest uh, of um, an influence would have been um the lord of the rings the books mm-hmm. not because they're particularly well written um and the story is quite turgid but um it was the fact that you can it, it showed that you could envision an entire world that was self-consistent and worked and i thought if if you can do this in text you can you can implement it and that's why i wanted to build a, a whole world in in computer code little realizing how much computer code it would need to <laughs> to, to finish yes uh, the, the next question we, we usually ask people, and mo- most of the people who come on this this podcast are, are sort of uh, board game designers, so we often ask a lot about mechanics, but I think I'd like to get more into the idea of world design. Um, mm-hmm. So you've already mentioned that one of the sort of attractive um, aspects of world design for you was escapism, that, that the real world didn't really come up to... No, it wasn't escapism, it was... Piss off, real world. Ah, right. Okay. <laughs> I don't know who designed you, but they didn't make a very good job of it. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so sort of that aspect of it. But um, what else is it about? Uh, is, is there any sort of particular aspect of world design um, itself, the, the actual process of world design that you find particularly stimulating or exciting? Well, the, um, what I'm about to say applies to any kind of game design, really. But essentially, when you're creating a game world you're or or a game or anything like even play you're saying something to the players so when you create a um in my case a virtual world um when the players are playing the game there are processes there's gameplay and you can speak to the players through the gameplay now the um The thing about when I did Mother, that was all about freedom, freedom to be and freedom to become who you are. So all the gameplay that we were building was towards that end. So there were things like, look, yes, you can be a jerk. You can annoy all the other players, but it will come back to you. It won't last long. It's not uh, the kind of activity that you're going to win if you keep doing it. So we built all these structures into the game when we were making it and it's the same for all games whenever you create a game your the, the mechanics are saying something to the players um, through the systems of the game the players are picking up on what you want to say um, because if they weren't why are you creating a game um, and if they, if they were picking up on something else like the um, the superficial um, skin of the game you know the dressing well again why again because you can do that in a movie what games have that nothing else have is has his gameplay so when you want to speak to the players as a designer then you're speaking through the gameplay the gameplay is all that games has that nothing else has um this isn't to say you can't use the other things you can't have visuals or or music or something which um, enhances or supplements the gameplay but the gameplay has to take precedence because that's what makes a game a game it's got gameplay um so that when it when it comes to deciding um on world building the first thing you need to decide is what am I, what am i trying to say to the players 
and once you've got a vision of that, what's this game actually about? Is it about um, loss? Is it about um, building bridges? Is it about um, misunderstandings? I mean, it, it could be whatever you want to say it's about, then you, then you visualise that in your mind and every time you need to make a decision and you can't make an easy one, you refer back to it and then the answer will just drop out. I mean, it just drops out very, very easily, um, um, surprisingly easily um, it, once you've got your vision. Uh, but if you're designing a game and you don't really know why or you're designing a game because you want to play it, well, that doesn't really always apply. Um, you, you could be designing a game to find out what it is you want to say. That's conceivable. Mm. Many artists do that. Um, so for building a world, well, what do I want my world to be saying? Um, typically, <clears throat> though, um, <laughs> there are a number of books you can get on designing world, but they're all at the superficial, um, like the surface level, which is Fair enough, because um, most players aren't going to look deeper. But if if you go deeper, that that gives you a greater consistency, and it also means you can have worlds that aren't just ripoffs of the real world. You don't have a a zone which is oh this is Japan, oh this is North America, oh this is the Caribbean, um, oh this is Egypt. We've just renamed it. Um, so rather than ripping off sad tired ideas of real world context unless you actually want to say something about those real world contexts um if you if you go for a deeper level then you you get new and interesting um results instead you get cultures that haven't been found in the real world it's not as if every culture that could possibly exist exists in the real world um some cultures could exist which we haven't had or haven't had yet and it's that kind of thing that uh, you can get if you go to a deeper level at a more systemic level even down to you know, plate tectonics level for de designing the world I mean, imagine what the real world would be like if instead of having one vast um, landmass on the east and one vast landmass on the west we'd have had lots of tiny little landmasses you can imagine that many different some species of humans would have um, evolved separately. And then those, some of those humans we might call elves and some of them we might call dwarfs, but some of them we wouldn't call either of them because they neither hug trees nor drink vast quantities of beer. So you can do, you, you can um, create worlds that are genuinely different but are recognisable. And when it comes to a virtual world rather than a, a game, a, a single-player triple a or whatever game but if it comes to a virtual world where there's going to be thousands of players and they're going to be playing in the same place all together um if you've got that that kind of setup to it that kind of hmm, coherence then the players will follow through they'll they'll go along with it and they'll they'll develop as they go so it sounds a lot like uh, when you're writing a, a novel, when you're writing fiction, but you also have building block when you're building a, a game. So what is from your uh, perspective, especially as someone who, who's done it, who, who was among the first to do it, what's the difference between imagining a world and writing about it versus 
actually creating it in some sense? Well, there are things you can write about that are physically impossible to implement, like time travel. Um, <clears throat> virtual worlds have got to be real time. So um, if you're playing a game and you want to go back in time, you can't because then, well, what's everybody else going to do who's been playing it? So there are some um, constraints like that. Um, th with um, you, you can There's still quite a lot of character creation. You can create characters, give them personalities, um, give them goals, have them interact with one another in, and, and so on. Um, sometimes people do that just for um, quest line stories, but... Uh, well, in fact, most of the time people do it for that, but you can, you could have emergent content that way, where if two guys just happen to be in the same city and both want to be the mayor of that city, then there's a conflict and then the players get drawn into it. So that, that something can just happen at random. Uh, but with, with novels, um, yeah, I mean, I write novels. Um, you, you can plan things in advance, uh, and see how they see how they go. You can either do it, um, start with an idea, and then just take it and see where it goes. Or you can start with an end. You've got an overall structure and try to create it um, to fit that. Um, the the latter will get you books quicker. The former will send you off in so many different directions that you might never finish. Like with Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so there's there's more you can do in a book. You can get inside um, characters' heads. You can tell people what people are thinking. But virtual worlds aren't about what people are thinking. They're about who you are. They're all to do with identity. It's who are you. Mm -hmm. So if I read a book and the uh, the hero goes off and rescues the dragon from the maiden, then. Um, it's not me who's done that. It's the hero of the book, the protagonist. But if I'm playing a virtual world, it is me who's done that. Um, and the, and my choice of actions is dictated by which uh, what I'm what I need right now. What's fun for me right now? Whereas in a book, um, what, I, I might come across a passage that's quite boring. And I have to plod through it because I know that if I miss this, then um, if I skip it, then I'm going to be in trouble later when something happens that I should know about that I haven't because I've skipped it. But in games, you've got a choice. If you you may be finding something boring, but someone else is finding it very interesting, and they'll stick with it, and you won't. Um, so with games, you've got a lot more choice, and the the games um, with the virtual world, the designer is creating the the web of constraints within which the player has to operate, um, but they're not forcing them to do everything. That It's not like you're um, clicking on every frame of a movie just to watch it a frame at a time. No, you've got agency. Um, designer decides what level of agency, but the, um, but the players are... Uh, if they don't have enough, they're just not going to play. And what they find fun when they're playing is what they need in order to help them get a better grasp of their identity, which is where player types comes from.
And I suppose that's another difference between um, something like Dungeons and Dragons, which is quite prescriptive when you've got a dungeon master who's already written the story effectively, um, and something like a virtual world where you're creating a, a space in which people can tell their own stories. It reminds me very much of... Um, I attended a lecture a couple of years ago um, by um, the, the authors of Design Unbound, and one of the chapters in those books is very much, is about world building. They talked about um, the fact that it had taken five years to do the world building behind the film um, Minority Report, and that Minority Report is only one possible story that could have been told in that massive world that they'd built behind it all. Yeah, well, one of the things you can do with world building is... Um, you can play them, play the world you've built, and then you get the stories. Um, games are machines for generating stories. Mm -hmm. So when you're playing yourself, you are being told a story, but it's a story that you're directing yourself yeah. through your actions. And, <clears throat> I mean, I the, the last Dungeons & Dragons campaign that I created, it must have been 15 years ago, um, I created the game, the, the world, by um, designing it um, using uh, as a whole world, and then um, I put it into um, Civilization Four, ah. the game, and uh, because what I wanted was a history that made sense up until the point when the players were going to play. So. Um, it's a bit like with um, Dwarf Fortress, playing through all the history to get to the point where you start to play. And that's what I did. I actually, uh, all the num units got numbers. I could tell where they came from. I could tell where all the different religions spread from. I had different, because um, it was D&D, &D, I had different character um, species. So I had, um, I think the elves were Babylonians because they got bows and arrows and stuff. Uh, <laughs> and I used that. And that meant that when I got to the point of, um, this is when I want the game to take place. There was already a history. The, el the elves were still quite aloof. The dwarfs were a their whole final um, holdout was about to collapse to the onslaught of the humans. Um, so, but that could have played out a completely different way. And if it had played out a different way, then um, it would have been a different setup for the for D and D. So, a, a world gives you potential. It tells you all the things that could possibly happen. They're all implicit within the world. Um, now, that doesn't mean that anything can happen, because if you haven't implemented aircraft, there isn't going to be aircraft. Um, if you haven't implemented magic, there isn't going to be magic. Um, but of all the things that could happen, the designer has set the boundaries. Um, and, the, and so they've created the space in which the players are exploring whatever they're exploring, which in virtual worlds cases is them exploring who they are. But in other games, they might be exploring something different. They might be exploring different political ideals or something. Designing things for the first time must come with a lot of challenges, right? <laughs> or I, let me rephrase that. I, I have a feeling that you created the typology as an answer to something, as an answer to a challenge. Am oh, I getting it right? It, oh, the oh, player types, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yes, that's right. Um, what had happened, with, with, this was in MUD version 4, known as MUD 2, uh, where 
we were having we had a conflict between the administrators because the way it worked back then was when you got up to the the final level um, and you got all the points and then you became an administrator and the administrators are called whizzes which was wizards and witches basically mm-hmm. so um, if you were a, a whiz level then you had all sorts of in-game powers and some of the whizzes thought well um, I shall use my powers to demonstrate that I'm a god and I shall appear and I'll be doing all these wonderful things. Everybody will bow down before me. And others were more subtle and they'll be sitting down and saying, nobody knows I'm here. I'm going to make life interesting for this one guy. Um, and so there was a conflict over it, uh, over over what was going on. And they were doing things um, to the players that they believed the players would find fun. So we had a long discussion about what players actually do find fun. The discussion was all over email. And at the end of it, I summarised the discussion. Um, and it um, it matched some of some thoughts I'd had um, a couple of years earlier um, to do with what people were finding fun. Uh, and we got the, the classic four types, achievers, explorers, socialisers and killers. Um, but the, the the idea for them had been around, at least in my head, for uh, some time. In fact, I'd written about them earlier, vaguely, um, for um, a, 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 a magazine for a club that used to give me money to write articles for them. So um, player types, the, the, the reason that I... I, I mean, I, I, I did it... I. I, I um, wrote it all up and then spent the next few years watching and saying, oh, yeah, that's right, that does seem to work, that's okay, you know, cool. Um, but the reason I published it, there was a new journal coming out, academic journal, called the Journal of Mud Research. And um, I'd submitted my ideas to um, GDC, um, wanted to give a talk and never heard back from them. Um, so when this came out, I thought, right, well, I shall, um, I'll write a, an academic paper, which I did. But the, the aim of the paper wasn't to say, these are the four player types. The aim of the paper was to say, there's more than just one player type. Mm-hmm. If you're creating a virtual world, people are playing for multiple different reasons, and that those reasons aren't all the reason that you personally are playing the, playing it for. The uh, Up until then, most people who created um, v- um, MUDs, as they were called at the time, were people who wanted to play the muds they created. And <clears throat> sometimes they got lucky, but sometimes um, they, they died because all they wanted to do was kill other players in combat or all they wanted to do was sit around and chat. Um, so by having multiple types, uh, or by saying, look, there are, these are examples of four player types. You're probably going to come up with some better ones, um, but look, this shows that there, there are more than just the ones you that you, than just you, and they all they're all needed. They all have to interact in order to get the virtual world up and running. Um, so I did that. Then um, there were some um, people who tried it out. Um, looked at it. Uh, one of the complaints was, well, these killers, these are people who are supposed to be acting 
on other players, but not everybody who acts on another player is a killer. Sometimes they're guild leaders, you know, they're they, they want to tell other players what to do, but they're not they're not out there to um, to grief them. Um, another thing was that it didn't um, say anything about how players change types. We'd known they they changed types right from the very beginning because what happened was people would start playing the game. First thing they'd do is try and kill each other. Then after they discovered that that wasn't going to be successful, they started exploring the virtual world, trying to find... Um, where they could get points, how they could go up levels, where they could get weapons, mainly to stop the other people from killing them. But after they'd found their feet and got used to that, then they started taking it seriously and saying, we're going to try and win this game. And so they'd be um, achievers. They'd be going through, getting the points, playing the game as as a game um, until they um, succeeded. And then at the end, they were... um, um, mainly socialisers sitting around, hanging around with the people that they'd been playing with, who they trusted and knew, and so on. So th- we'd known that from from the beginning that that path, the main sequence. Um, but we, there was no explanation as to why or how players changed types, and, and there was no explanation as to why people played virtual worlds. Mm-hmm. So um, when I uh, wrote my 2003 book which was um well seven years after the the paper um i I looked into it more and by adding an extra four types basically by doubling up each type um i was able to answer all those questions but few people bother to use the eight types model they all stick with the four types model because it's got killers in and that sounds really good yeah (laughs) and have you checked um Andrei Machevsky's uh, typology, who is, uh, he basically took... He's uh, Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, we collaborated on it. He, he, was, mm-hmm. um, he was asking me about it. Essentially, he's, he's, he said, no one's going to remember eight, but they might remember six. So he, com- <laughs> he combined two, of, two pairs together so that it was six instead of eight. So, um, yeah, it's basically, it's... Um, it's uh, a modification of, of player types, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, um, I've, I've not got anything against it. We, we, we you know, we discussed it together. It was, um, yeah, fair enough. And, it, and, it, and the thing is that formally, player types only works for virtual worlds, MMORPGs, and, mm-hmm. and other games like Second Life, Virtual Worlds. Um, the um, be, and the reason for that is because I can't explain why it would work for anything else. Mm-hmm. So when people use it for single-player games or for uh, multiplayer but not massively multiplayer, well, okay, if it works, that's great. But um, I don't know why it would work, so I never com- I never make claims that it would work. Um, now, the Hexa, that, that was originally developed for um, gamification, which isn't yep. even games. So you can see how that would um, uh, have s- having six um, segments to the hex might make a lot more sense for that. Um, and if it does work, then then great. Um, you know, go with it. I'm not going to complain. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I rather hope people do come up with a better um, typology than player types eventually, so that uh, we get better games. There are some ones that are more thoroughly researched. Um, 
Nick Yee's got a bunch of um, facets, he calls them, which um, he developed by doing cluster analysis of tens of thousands of players. Um, and they largely map onto um, my player types. But uh, mm -hmm. but they can also be used for um, games that aren't virtual worlds, whereas mine are only for virtual worlds, but mine are dynamic, whereas the other ones are static. So you know that if someone starts off as a griefer, then the next stage they're going to become a scientist or a networker. And then the next stage they're going to become an attainer or whatever I decide to call them again, uh, or a politician, and they're going to end up as um, some sage guru type or a, um, a friend hanging around with their mates. So you know that there's that progression. You know the path that people will follow, um, which you don't get for a game uh, if, if people are just saying, which of these 12 types, do you, why are you playing? And, yeah. Um, but that you don't need that if people are only going to be playing a game for 40 hours. For MMOs, people play them for two to four hours every night for two years. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a longer time span. So to sort of come back to the idea of, of different games um, mm -hmm. and uh, indeed different virtual worlds, apart from your own, which other games or, or virtual worlds do you like the most and why? Uh well, game designers, unsurprisingly, are quite often asked, what's your favourite game? <laughs> and my go-to answer would be Dungeons & Dragons um, because uh, it's uh, <clears throat> it's the one that opened up the floodgates to everybody else playing these sorts of games. Uh, we, would have, we would have got mud without Dungeons & Dragons. We would have got mud, something like mud without me. We're always going to get these games. It's just a case of you know, wet who happened to be the right place, the right time, right age. As I said, it's all luck. Um, in terms of virtual worlds, my favourite is quite an obscure one called The Secret World, which is absolute gem of a virtual, beautiful, beautiful um, mechanics to it. I mean, mm, it, and, and it, it really ties in with the dressing. It's, it, it, it just all fits together. It's... Mm, Wonderful game. Um, unfortunately, the uh, um, the combat isn't everyone's cup of tea, uh, and it didn't get picked up on that. It kind of ran out of money um, during development, and they, uh, when they added the final um, part to it, they changed how combat worked and completely screwed it up. Then they brought out Secret World's Legend, which was kind of a cash grab um, with pay to win and a bunch of things like that in it. Um, but the original Secret World was, th that would be my favourite. Um, other ones that I would say, um, <sighs> EVE Online, which I've never played, um, but that's got ab absolute integrity. They've got an idea and they stick with it. Okay, so they keep trying to make stupid little first-person shooters based off of it, but the main game itself um is uh it, it's stuck to its vision for you know, 20 years and and very successfully uh without having to um prostitute itself to try and get more players um so that's pretty good 
Um, I usually play MMOs. Um, let's see, last year I played, what did I play? Three, I think, last year. Um, Lost Dark, New World, and Guild Wars 2, which I hadn't played before. So I played those last year. The previous year it was mainly Final Fantasy fourteen, I think. So, yeah, I've, I mean, I've played loads of these things. Um, but not because I'm a player. It's because I'm a designer. Um, so <laughs> if people ask me, what's your player type? Well, I don't really have one. You know, designers don't have them. They get designer fun, not, not player fun. Um, and a lot of it's to do with um, qualifications so that people say, oh, um, what level did you get to in World of Warcraft or something? And if I if I don't say I've been on such and such raids, then then they won't accept that I know anything about it. So you, some of it is credentials, just like that, just to show that, yeah, well, actually, I think when I stopped World of Warcraft um, in 2012, the level cap was 80, and I had three 80-level characters or something, and we, yeah, I used to do the raiding, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's a different game. And uh, when it comes to game designers, do you have any that you admire? Um, well, yes, um, quite a few. Um, Raf Costa... Um, would be high on my list um, because he's designed several games which are uh, absolute classics in the MMO world. Um, if it's uh, if you don't mean MMOs, then um, someone like um, Rainer Nitzia. Yeah, love his games. Yeah, um, five hundred and so or so of them. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing Lord of the Rings only this weekend. Oh, right. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I suppose, yeah, the uh, holiday weekend, it's a time to play games. Um, and a lot of them are about mechanics and uh, first and then dressing put on top, but you do have to admire the balance that he manages to get out of them. Um, so the other uh, MMO designers, um, Mark Jacob, um, he's... Uh, He's been working on um, Camelot Unchanged for about 10 years now, but um, anyone who gives up their job as a lawyer to, to <laughs> learn programming so they can make their own game, you know he's got passion, and that's what he did um, back in the day. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's... Um, and I quite like um, Philip Rosedale um, for uh, um, Second Life because... He's got a vision. I mean, I don't particularly share it, but um, he understands what he wants and how to get it. And um, and he's got a much deeper understanding than all the, um, the, the meta uh, people who came along, you know, trying to create um, a multiverse and so on, a metaverse or whatever they want to call it. Um, mm-hmm. So there are a number of, I mean, most designers um, have got admirable qualities. I don't want to name, start naming a long list of them because then people say, well, why didn't he say me? <laughs> so what piece of advice would you give to someone who's starting out in games design? Maybe, you know, sort of taken from some of the things that you admire. Uh, well, what I would say if people are thinking out uh, on game design is why do you want to design games? Mm-hmm. Why? Just you need to know why you want to do it. You could do all sorts of things. Why aren't you making music? Why aren't you drawing pictures? Why aren't you dancing? 
why aren't you um, writing screenplays? There's so many things you could do. Why do you want to do games? And um, quite often when you ask people this, it's this, ever since I was a small child, I have enjoyed playing computer games. Well, yeah, but ever since you was a small child, you've enjoyed living in houses, but you don't want to be a bricklayer, do you? <laughs> or even an architect. I mean, you don't. So what is it? What do games have that you want? I want to bring other people fun. Well, you can do that in movies. What? what why do you want to? You, know, you can do You can do podcasts. You can do, uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, well, you can do podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can do Twitch streams. You can do all sorts. Why would you? design games when you could do all these other things you could be out there working on a um charity f project out in ethiopia but no you're designing why and the answer has got to be that through games i can express things ask questions say things that i can't using any other medium and if I could, then I would, wouldn't would be designing games. I would be saying it using the better medium. But ultimately, if someone is, if you say, what's this game about? You might have some idea. Yeah, it's about freedom. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's about, um, being lost. Yeah, yeah. It's about, uh, uh people's changing circumstances. But ultimately, the answer's got to be, just play the game. If you play the game, you'll understand. I can't say it in words because if I could say it in words, I wouldn't have to make the game. Yeah. Yeah. If you could say it in words, you'd you know, write a poem. Don't. But if you can't, if you can only say it in a game, then that's why you're a game designer because that's, you have to be because that's all you can say what you want to say through. Mm. Yeah. I mean, most game designers do have other things. Raf Costa plays the guitar and sings and stuff um i write some books uh most game designers do have sidelines many of them are uh, accomplished um artists but for when it comes to game design the best game designers are the ones who are trying to say something and not that well that something isn't just here's a cool mechanic but here's mm -hmm. a cool mechanic that's going to make you think yeah and I think that naturally goes to what we usually end the podcast with. And the question is, what have you learned from your own long game design experience uh, that can be transferred to some other areas of life? What kind of life lessons we can learn from your game design and virtual world design experience? Well, from creating games gives you a... Uh, uh, I would say systems, but that's not. Um, it, it's um, it's the ability to reason about reasoning. Mm. When you're designing a game, you're always thinking, "What are the players going to do? Why would they be doing this? What do I want them to do, or at least not what want them not to do?" So you're always thinking about other people, and if you're thinking about other people, that makes it easier for you to relate to other people in real world because you've given so much thought to it. But it also means that you can you, you can do high-level reasoning about lots and lots of other things. Most game designers know a great deal about bizarre things, um, things that you wouldn't expect them to know about, but they just happen to know because 
they were suddenly interested. And they don't know why they were interested. They just were interested, read up on pagodas or whatever it was. It was pagodas for me, I remember, at one point. Uh, but they don't know necessarily why. But it's all going in there, and you're getting you're getting the ability, the ability to reason about reasoning. Now, it may be that you need the ability to reason about reasoning to become a game designer in the first place. So I'm not entirely sure whether it's causation or correlation. Mm -hmm. But a lot of game designers are very smart people. Um, and if it's a media effect rather than a selection effect, then the more games you design and the more you understand why you're designing them, what you're designing them for, and who's going to play them and what they're going to get from it, the more you're going to get from from life because those same uh, a, a game is just a, for all you know you are living in a game right now you're an npc and sooner or later some players are going to come down trash the place and then go away so yeah free movement within a rigid system is a game uh, that's what you've got in real life you can do the same um, yeah, just if you do want to be a game designer, though, don't expect to come out of it rich. <laughs> it rarely happens, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Not unless you go into it rich, and even then, you might have come out of it rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's generally that's generally life, though, isn't it? The best the best way to end up a millionaire is to be born a billionaire. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you so much um, for your time um, and for your well infinite erudition. My rambling, rambling is the word you wanted. <laughs> no, rambling is good because it's it's kind of like, that's kind of what we what we like from the podcast that kind of free flow. It's really good. It has been quite inspiring, as as I expected. <laughs> I was like, let's send a message, but th this is an absolute legend in the game design world. Like, will it be possible? And then you replied, I'm like, oh, this is actually happening. Okay, let's go. Oh, no. Oh, no. What am I going to do? <laughs> it's one of the things we've actually discovered through doing this podcast, isn't it? Is that you, you, you don't know until you ask. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you don't ask... They're not going to speak. No. If they do ask, they may speak or they may not. But if you don't ask, it's the same either way. They're just not going to speak. Absolutely. Yeah, if you don't ask, the answer is always no, right? <laughs> Indeed. Because no, nobody volunteers themselves. We've, we've discovered that. Which is, it's very odd. Well, yes, and, you, and you'd be very suspicious of someone who did. <laughs> yes, what is it you want to sell? <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, thank you. And this has been the Ludogogi Podcast. Game, Game over! over. Yeah.